I must say, I mean, thank you so much, uh, uh, Alfonso, just for inviting me onto the podcast. But I'm, I'm very grateful that you're starting it with me. I hope it flourishes and, you know, goes all places that you want to take it to. But more importantly, sorry, I'll, is it still on the podcast or, or that section is closed? We can decide as you please. We're recording, but we can cut it. What do you feel? Welcome to Adelante, the podcast filled with inspiring stories of people embracing their uniqueness. I'm Alfonso Comino, your host. Our guest today is Deepak Ramola. Deepak is the founder of Project FIO, which stands for Forward the Understanding of Every Life Lesson. They amplify life lessons from people in all walks of life, all of them not just inspiring, but also rooted in compassion. Project FIO is on a journey to collect 1 million life lessons to share wisdom that is applicable to everyone. Deepak serves as the kindness ambassador for the UNESCO Mahatma Gandhi Institute of Education. He is a two-time TED speaker and an award-winning writer. Deepak has taught over 500,000 people worldwide, including women in the Masai tribe in Tanzania, young girls in Afghanistan, sex workers in Kamathipura, India, and Syrian refugees in Europe, to name just a few. In this conversation, Deepak talks about challenges in his childhood, his journeys to embrace his uniqueness, and how collecting life stories became his life's mission. He narrates some inspiring stories that left an impression on him over the years, and then goes on to elaborate on how he and Project Fuel bring them to life. Despite all this achievement, Deepak claimed to have failed at convincing his relatives that he has a real job. I bet we could not be more convinced that his humble approach to life will have an everlasting impact. Enjoy this conversation with Deepak Ramola. Hello, Deepak, and thank you for being here with us in Adelante today. Uh, we're so pleased to have somebody of your caliber, and we're going to do a really deep dive on yourself today. I think our listeners are for a treat here. And I was thinking a really good way to start will be to go all the way to the beginning. And maybe you can explain to a global audience what it was to be born somewhere in the 90s. We don't have to say it was uh, 91 or 99, somewhere in there, in Dehradun, in the Himalayan foothills in India. First of all, thank you so much, Alfonso, for inviting me over. I grew up in a very middle-class family in a small city, uh, almost a retired sleepy town on the foothills in the Himalayas, as you said. Uh, Dehradun, by its, its nature, is a town of retired people. And that means that there is a lot of room for reflection about life. There is a lot of scope to take things slowly, more easily, in a more uh, uh, happy, compassionate fashion. There is not in that sense the hustle of the metropolis life. So I grew up with those kind of values and those kind of lifestyle, um, you know, discipline and routine dictating my, my schedule. And it, it's been an incredible uh, yeah, journey growing up. I mean, so much of nature by uh, parents who were so focused on making sure that their children are in tune with the cultural values, they're in tune with uh, the societal beliefs of ancestral uh, values. So it's been a beautiful time growing up in this small city, if I could uh, visualize that for you. Yeah, yeah, so for people listening, it's around 300 kilometers from Delhi. 
So it's uh, north of India, right? And I heard you describe it as a small town, but it has 1.2 million people living in it. So only people who <laughs> come from yeah. India or perhaps China will describe that as a small. Um, let me ask you something. Did you go to school there? I heard you talk about you have some early struggles in school and that probably shaped who you are today. Is that something that you would like to unpack? Sure. Growing up, I was uh, continuously immersed in finding out, observing why, what happens, how people think, how people feel. And it, I mean, as a child, you're anyways curious, but I was curious to the degree where I would like to know uh, from elders, from people from outside my community, how they lived and did things that I did in my own personal way. So I was a curious child. In fact, uh, you know, Alfonso, I must tell you my last name, which is Ramola, actually means someone who's curious to know other people's stories. And it is no coincidence that that's what I've come to do in my life, is collect people's wisdom and, and stories. Um, school was fun. I was learning a lot from my teachers, tutors, and mentors. It was harsh as a young boy with a petite voice. It took me a while to have my voice not the baritonish child in uh, you know teenage that you that you would expect, and that led to a lot of bullying. Um, I was constantly laughed at, constantly discriminated against. People said my voice sounded like a girl, sounded like a kid, and so I was made to feel the odd one out continuously. And that seclusion uh, was very heavy on my young heart, as you can imagine, because when you're young, you have to find other ways to like yourself. Uh, then your looks and your voice, if you're being told you are different. And so in, in that journey, I learned a lot of self-love. I remember uh, in grade 11, my English teacher uh, had come in for her class. I was crying profusely. And she took me outside the class and she said, why are you crying? And I said, they bully me about my voice. And she said, do you like your voice? And I said, I don't know. I've never thought about it. She said, well, if you were to wake up tomorrow morning and you couldn't speak any longer, would you be okay with that? And I said, no, not at all. I, I would like to speak. And she said, okay, that means you like your voice. Now that you like your voice, you have to own your voice. You have to own your story. And with that in mind, nobody can make you feel bad about something you own, something you have earned and you're proud of. And that one day, I think it was in the March of that year, uh, it was it was so revelatory, it was so liberating that I decided nobody would uh, infiltrate my space or my integrity of my own voice without my permission. And since that day, uh, the bullying sort of stopped in my head. It did exist, people did laugh, but my reaction to that bullying was not self-harmful, was not damaging. Uh, it became more constructive. It became more of a, you know, entertaining thing. It became more uh, of a lens to look at people's ignorance and, and take a good laugh at it. So those growing up years, what they did for me was that they helped me construct a good notion about identity. And I want to touch upon that is because as young people, what, what often happens, I think, Alfonso, is that you're borrowing your identity definitions from everyone else. But if you do take time to define what it means to be you, uh, what it takes to be you, where you come from, 
and also decide that nobody can make you feel reduced about those things then you are in a very empowered position so my identity shaped on the foundation of a positive narrative and the narrative was that i as deepak ramola and someone who has a voice the tonal quality of that voice might not be what conventionally boys and men have and that's okay but what i have to say with that voice is of substance and deserves attention and that switch was really the turning point of my uh, of my teenage bullied and battered self into my empowered young adult voice and life oh deepak i really love that answer and i think a lot of people will take a lot of time to reach such a maturity uh from understanding that and you obviously were put in a situation that forced you to do that much earlier on it's really inspiring and one of the things you said that ramola means to uh to be interested in life stories is that in hindi or sanskrit interestingly it's a foreign name uh, i was reading on a survey that one person in every 2200 americans is called ramola so actually neither from hindi or sanskrit it is a foreign uh, definition other one is called charming which has the indian tonality ah uh, but i'm i'm going with the ne- the other one <laughs> alfanzo i think charming is uh, you know it's a risky thing to call yourself my surname means charming uh, <laughs> well i i guess you didn't pick this so you're entitled to describe it as it is because it was given to you <laughs> so uh, you're definitely charming yes. if if i can say that on your behalf Uh, based on your book that we will cover later one of the stories that you mentioned is after school where you suffered that bullying and you kind of grew a lot on the early years you went on to study in the Indian Institute of Technology and you uh you didn't feel that I was the right place for you is that is that a good way to say uh so yes yeah, just just to correct that so i was preparing to get into the Indian Institute of Technology it's like a super competitive very very uh, you know high scoring place Uh, to be an engineer uh, in 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 uh, in that sense or to get into the technology field i was preparing for it i didn't you know get in but i was preparing what happens generally i'm sure it's the same in china or many uh, places across the world in your um, senior school or in your uh, sophomore you prepare for these uh, competitive exams and that's the same in india in grade 11 and 12 which is your sophomore year you prepare for what your career is going to be and being a good student i had you know by default uh, the opportunity to prepare for um, a, a career in engineering or technology i didn't want to but as a middle class child from a small city that's what you're expected to from societal beliefs right if you're a good student if you're not taking science what are you really doing with your life and so i started preparing uh, hoping to qualify for the indian institute of technology exam and then pursue engineering but as i mentioned in the book which you reference when i went every day to the coaching classes where i was training i felt like an outcast i didn't see myself as someone who was solving these theories and these mathematical assignments i saw someone my, of myself as someone who was playing with language who was using stories to inspire so i i felt like a misfit through and through honestly Oh, I see. I guess the part that confused me is that you went to actually do classes to pass the exam. So I think the impression I took away yeah. is that you went there. Uh, so that that makes sense. And uh, you elaborate how you were not fit. And sometimes 
what society tells us is the best for us. It doesn't resonate with who we are. So I, I thought that was a really good point of another lesson that you learn much earlier than most people do in life. Uh, so I wanted to bring it up. What happened when you decide this is absolutely not the moment that make you realize that and what happened afterwards? Uh, that's a great question. So I spent two years preparing for an exam I didn't want to give. Uh, and as the exam date got closer and closer, I realized that I was not going to live the life that I wanted for myself. And I, I was an official debater at my school. I was a poet. I was, you know, always performing in the dramatics. And as that exam got closer, I realized, I mean, you know, we are taught to fight it out all, all the time. We are taught to fight out one career over another, one relationship over another. But what I learned in that moment was to negotiate. And so I went to my parents, Alfonso, and I told them, you know, you've spent enough money for me to give this exam. I will give the exam, but I want to tell you that even if I do make it, I will leave it after a few years to pursue what I want to do. And in the meantime, if I do give the exam and don't qualify, I want to open up my options uh, and I want to apply for a course in mass media, in journalism. And so I think it was almost, Every night for two weeks, uh, you know, me sitting with my parents and my sister, who was a great ally, by the way, I convinced her first and she would she would defend my case and she would say, you know, he's made for public speaking. He's made for the arts. Uh, let's not limit him in this world um, of, of a career that that's limited. So my parents said, all right, the negotiation sort of worked. They said, you give the exam depending on what the fate of the exam is, we, we'll take a call. And fortunately, you know, when I gave the exam uh, a few weeks later, I knew in the exam hall, I wasn't going to qualify uh, uh, to the top tier of it. So I came back home and I told them, I gave the exam to the best of my ability, but I have a feeling people perform much better with greater motivation. So I would like to pursue the career that I want. So my parents sent me to Mumbai. Now I must tell you, Mumbai is, uh, you know, in the central part of India uh, and Dehradun is up north. My parents had not even a single person they knew in the city, as you know, it's, you know, called the financial capital, the film capital of India. It's a, it's a city that we only see in movies uh, as a glamorous place. So for my parents who literally came from the village, build their life up in the city that I live in called Dehradun, for them to imagine sending their child almost with naivety and innocence to a metropolis that they had no connection with was a stuff of nightmare. Uh, but I, to their credit, they, they were able to take that chance. I called up my teacher and I said, do you know somebody there? And she said, luckily, my daughter lives and works there and she could be your guardian. And I said, oh, all right, that would be very helpful. So I called up the daughter and she said, you know what, there are forms open to the university in Mumbai, but you are already 15 days too late. So if you don't make it here in next two weeks, you're going to miss out on the form. So my father and I took a train uh, the next morning itself. That's, that was a two and a half days journey. And we sat in the general compartment and I want to picture, uh, paint a picture for people who, who are uh, uh, not used to the Indian railway system. If you sit in the general compartment, that means the world is there. 
there are cattle there are people the general compartment is literally in many ways like a refugee camp or a, a you know a post crisis site where everybody is stuffed in uh, you know the seats are not in reservation so to say and so when we took that seat we were so desperate to get to bombay that we didn't move for two and a half days uh, you know the only break we could take was luckily we were sit- seated by the train window that didn't have any bars so you could sneak out of the train window at a station and use the washroom and come back in but the food the sleep was all in the sitting position so after two and a half days when we arrived in mumbai uh, i remember at 4:10 in the morning um i can tell you alfonso i felt as if it was my territory i felt that this is where i was meant to be and this is the first time i set foot in the city and all the discussions all the dreaming in those classes for the preparation of the uh, engineering exam all of that sort of blurred in the background and i finally felt that i was home to a place that i could learn and live at and and pursue my higher education and that's really an epic journey to your destiny i guess two and a half days uh travel on train and i have lucky enough to been into india i believe six times and uh having been to different places of india uh including mumbai i can clearly see the difference between mumbai and and certain other places and the impact that it must have had on on you and your father one of the things that i want to touch since you bring it up is you brought up your sister and your parents but you haven't talked yet about your mom but you talk a lot about her in other places and how she teach you incredible lessons that i don't want to steal from your mouth because they're really powerful and i will appreciate if you you probably know what i'm making reference to if you can elaborate on them because yeah. it's truly touching absolutely my mother plays the the protagonist role in my life in the sense that everything i do today is inspired and influenced by my mother's life and her own vision she was pulled out of school in grade 5 by her grandmother and didn't ever have a chance to return to school you know back in the day it was thought what will girls do getting educated and my mother was the eldest of eight siblings so first one pulled out of school and growing up i never believed that my mother never went to school she is so smart she is so wise uh you know very articulate she has a great memory even if it is colloquial and contextual to her mountain life and her local language she's full of these proverbs and local anecdotes and folk tales a very knowledgeable person and so for my young mind growing up it was inconceivable that my mother who knew so much never had made it to school um and you know when i asked her at age 14 how did she know so much if she didn't go to school her very naive and honest answer was life is my classroom and i thought well if she's learning simply from living that means everyone who is living is learning something and where can i find that information where can i know what my friend grandmother has learned in her life or through her cultural uh, anecdotes and so alfonso that one conversation with my mother and just seeing her growing up changed the way i perceived the world i started seeing value in every human being and and it became the motive of my life to learn so much from every single person who you couldn't google because you couldn't google my mother but she knew so much she was like a walking talking encyclopedia and so i thought well there must be other people 
who know something, they are neither rich nor famous. And how do I eliminate the pressure of creating the app, being a Miss Universe, running the biggest Instagram handle with a million followers until you come across influencing and impacting someone's life? My mother is never going to do any of those things. She's not going to be a startup founder. She's never going to be at a beauty pageant. She's not going to be a film star. Yet, she has value and wisdom. How can I best pass this on? Uh, and how can I make sure that I find other people like my mother who can pass this information uh, to other people? So that's really how my mother has influenced my life. Yeah, absolutely. And I also heard you talking about how she differentiates very clearly between literate versus educated. And uh, I love if you could expand a bit more on that. Absolutely. So my mother, from a very young age, as you can imagine, I, I describe her as a, as a very intellectual, very smart woman, would always tell us, me and my sister, that there's a difference between being literate and being educated. A person who's literate knows how to read and write. But a person who's educated now knows how to live life and conduct life in association with others, whether that's their family, that's their community, or that's the world at large. And she used to say, I might not be literate, which means I might not differentiate A from B. I cannot write one to 10, but I do know how to hold a conversation. I do know how to console a grieving loved one. I know how to... Uh, cook up a meal when someone's hungry and craving, craving some comfort. I know how to work with the indigenous way to protect nature, to sow what seed at what season so that it doesn't harm the soil. And that differentiation provided her a certain sense of empowerment, provided her a certain sense of narrative, which was very, very inspiring because that differentiation also actually made me look at people whenever I traveled uh, that a lot of people were literate, which meant that they were PhD holders, they were double doctorates, they were double master's holders, they were scholars, but you couldn't sit across them and hold a conversation for 30 minutes. Yet I met uh, old women in villages that I've worked who never know the difference between a white word and a black word, you know, cannot read and write a letter. Yet you can speak to them for years and months about their life, about their perspectives. And that is the difference my mother was trying to emphasize all throughout, that Deepak, there will be people who have read theoretically a lot, but they know literally nothing. <laughs> and there are people who know practically a lot, but theoretically they cannot say how to frame it in the best way. Know the difference and engage accordingly. How well put. And uh, I'm probably guilty of that. I think as a society, we over-index when it comes to things that we can measure. And... Um, we do tend to really like data or scoring system, so to speak. And there's a lot of things in life and knowledge that cannot be measured. And I think your mom has a really good way to demonstrate that. So that's a really good lesson. And also a very good segue where I want to take the next conversation now that we kind of understand your early childhood and early years on your life is that you became a collector of life stories and we're gonna unpack down different levels. Um, but at some point you decided that and you have made reference to this just a second ago, is that your life mission became about collecting life stories from, from all sort of people you went on to collect life stories. 
uh, you mentioned that your mom kind of inspired you. I also heard somewhere else that it was the first story you collected was from your sixth sister, right? When she has some form yes. of a heartbreaking story. Is that correct? Absolutely. And so that's what I, I now do with my work. My mother's journey inspired me to start collecting life lessons of other people. Uh, and funny enough, you know, Alfonso, I, let me be very honest with you. When I started collecting life lessons and stories of other people at age 14, uh, my goal wasn't to start a global movement of documenting wisdom of common people. I really thought if I collect enough life lessons by the time I'm 18, I will be the first person in human history to make no mistakes because I will know one thing about everything or something about everything and that will guide me to not do that mistake. When I did arrive at 18, I realized when you learn from other people's mistakes, it's not that you stop making mistakes. It's just that you don't make the same mistakes that a million people have made. You are free and more empowered to make newer mistakes. And that in itself is such a fascinating, um, you know, approach to living life. You feel strengthened, you, your resilience um, becomes more uh, potent because you can make newer mistakes and you can tell people, hey, I failed, but I failed at something new. So, you know, my mother's life and that conversation influenced me to collect life lessons and stories from other people over time. And as I started collecting these pieces of advice, these nuggets of wisdom, I wanted to see how to apply them. And of course, I was applying that in my own life. But the reference you made of my sister, she was crying on our terrace after her first heartbreak. And I walked up to her and I said, you know, I learned this beautiful lesson from somebody who said, uh, what is for you shall not pass you by at a wedding. Do you think that that makes sense to you? And I said, if this person you're crying about was meant to be, he would have not passed by. He would have been your boyfriend still. And my sister's expressions changed. She, she took a pause and she said, you are right. I need to now stop crying and find someone who will stay and not pass by. And that's my first memory of seeing how one person's life lesson was such a good perspective for another human being, even if both had never met in their life. So uh, definitely... It encouraged me to start passing on these life lessons to more and more people and figure out a way in which uh, those perspective sharing and perspective taking could be employed in people's day-to-day -day lives rather than in dramatic uh, situations uh, like losing a loved one or having a pathetic heartbreak. How could we learn from day-to-day? -day? So I started passing on life lessons on the school bus to my best friend when he was having difficulty or to my tuition classmates, to my parents, to people who visited home for dinner, I would collect life lessons and I would just pass on life lessons. I turned my entire body into a big earpiece, just absorbing people's knowledge and seeing them glow in their own philosophical understanding of what it means to be alive and what it means to condense their experiences into something that is purposeful not just for them, but in the hope for a larger collective good. That is such a good lesson. I actually remember the first time I heard those few words, uh, what is for you won't go by you. And I think it was uh, Michael Wade, which was uh, a very important person in the company I was working at the time. And he was addressing a few of us that were on a management trainee program. And we were very young and 
I guess, not very humble at the time, especially myself. And uh, that sentence was an inflection point to learn that, you know, sometimes uh, you might think you want something straight away, uh, but it's very difficult to judge if that is really the best thing for you without hindsight. And it kind of helped me a little bit to, to move away to a more <laughs> sort of humble persona, I would say. Part of the life stories that you have, um, and I could have like many, but I picked two of them because they, I, I find they were really powerful. And uh, the first one I want to start is talking about the the city of uh, Varanasi, which is uh, Uttar Pradesh, which is the biggest um, state in India. And it's also known as the spiritual capital, right? Especially for Hindus, yeah. where they always go there to bath on the, on the Ganges River. And it's very... Uh, sacred for funerals especially and I know you spend some time there in a hostel where people go and check in if they feel they're about to die and um, I was really touched by that story um, do you want to elaborate what you learned when you were there yes absolutely uh, so as you mentioned in the Hindu mythology uh, it is believed that if you take your last breath closer to the river Ganges and in the city of Varanasi you will attain what is popularly known as salvation or moksha, as we call it. Uh, you know, the, uh, the freeing of the spirit from uh, the, the cycle of being born in uh, a human form continuously. And so I had read about Alfonso, this hostel in India, where people checked in to die. And, you know, it's very common. You don't pay attention because, you know, you're brought up in a culture that it's usual for these belief systems to be rooted in our core uh, principles, in our lifestyles. But what was interesting about this one particular uh, guest house was that it only gave you two weeks to stay. And if, it, if you did not die within those two weeks of checking in, you had to check out. And when I heard that for the first time, I almost chuckled because, you know, not only do you have to make peace with the fact that you are closer to the end, but you have to do so with the timer on um, at a place that tells you day one gone out of 14 days, 13 days left, 12 days left. And so you have to track your own death with the timeline of the stay at the hostel, which is Mukti Bhavan. And Mukti in itself means freedom and Bhavan means hostel. So it's the hostel of salvation and freedom. I went there for my research early 2016 to study what did people learn at the fag end of their life? What is that they would say is their life lesson? How did they see themselves and others in, in relation to what their learnings were? And so in, in many ways, uh, you know, going there was so insightful. Uh, I remember the people who were staying there and checked in were, were all right. You know, I, I had fantastic conversations with them, their families. But the most fascinating person was the manager of Mukti Bhavan, Mr. Bhairav Nath Shukla. Somebody who had, uh, you know, spent 44 years of his life doing that work. And I'm talking about 2016. So you can imagine he's now closer to 50 years of doing this job. And for 44 years, he served as a manager of Mukti Bhavan and worked in that space and seen 12,000 people die in his arms. So I asked him, him the life lessons. And he said, I will tell you one for every thousand people that I've seen die. 
So I did this beautiful documentation and an article called 12 Life Lessons from a Man Who's Seen 12,000 Deaths. And it was life-changing. Not just that trip, but that conversation with Mr. Shukla. Uh, there were many lessons that he told me, one of which, if you permit me, uh, I can share. Oh, please. We're ready. <laughs> all right. Uh, so he shared with me, resolve all conflicts before you go. He said, Deepak, every single person of the 12,000 had someone they wanted to say sorry to or someone they wanted to hear sorry from. And he said, most people say that sorry or accept that apology only in their last moments. We carry the baggage of resolving our conflicts until a moment where we think we are not going to be here any longer or the person we have the grudge against will uh, not be around for too long. He said, the, 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 when I say resolve all conflicts before you go, is not just when you go from the world, is when you go to bed. Every single night, ask yourself, what is the smallest step I can take towards resolving this grudge, this um, smoothening, this uh, malice I have towards somebody else, the disappointment somebody offered me and I was bruised by, how can I rise above this? And how can I make peace with it? And, you know, I asked him, I said, it's so difficult if you fought with somebody this morning, how do you resolve it by the night? Isn't it going to reduce your, um, you know, some sort of notoriety or ego or, or your stature of being right? And he said, I hear you. You don't have to call up the person straight away, but you can start by drafting the message you would like to send them a week later when you do accept the apology or if the apology is never coming, then to make peace of it within yourself. And that's how he explained resolving all conflicts before you go to me is not to say that if you fought with somebody and you now don't see eye to eye with them, that you go and just make everything, you know, smooth. And now you go to their house for lunch and they come over to your place for a festival. It's not that. It's really resolving it in your heart. And so if you feel deemed fit that let me give another chance to this person or I deserve another chance and I shall fight for it then you resolve it that way. But if you come to believe that, I think whatever this person was to offer to me in this lifetime, that's done. Whatever I was to give to this person, that's done. And so now we have our other journeys to pursue and we can resolve this in our heart and move on. It is not to be on a Sunday afternoon lounging in your chair uh, and still thinking about somebody you don't talk to anymore. It is to move on and to let go and knowing the difference between the two that he taught me. It's one of the many lessons uh, from the 12, but this one stands out the most and has impacted so many lives around the world that I thought it's best fit to share this one. Yes, and I also like how you uh, make it very actionable to, to tell people to do something before they go to bed that doesn't need uh, immediate action with somebody else. So it's up to you if you want to do it or not. Uh, so I thought that was really good. Yeah. Um, something that is related to this story, uh, I don't know if it's the same one, but you also mentioned a story where death sent us a message to all of us who are still alive. And it's a reminder that we're in this together and that our time will also come, right? So I don't know if it's related to when you were uh, there in 
Varanasi or is something that you learn somewhere else. But I thought it was really beautiful that, you know, we're on this together and the mission is to help each other to have the best and most fulfilling life. Uh, yes, uh, thanks for reminding me of that. Uh, that is a conversation I had with the tea seller on the ghats where the bodies are cremated. I was I was having a tea and looking at the funeral pyres in front of me and I was, I was seeing this guy sell tea as if it was literally just his life, daily life. He was seeing the, you know, the real end of people's life, their bodies coming up in flames and being taken, the ashes being carried away by loved ones. And so I asked him, what does this really mean? And he said, every single person who you see on a pyre has sacrificed his or her life to tell people or remind people who are living what truly matters. But they don't get it until they themselves are on a funeral pyre acting as a reminder for their loved ones of what truly matters. And so I asked him, what is it that truly matters? And he said, your sanity, your love. It's not the new refrigerator in the market. It's not the latest cell phone. What really matters is how you see yourself and how you see other people, how you treat yourself and how you are treating other people. That's what really defines this lifetime. Because you're not taking away uh, a car into your another lifetime, as something that you know many people believe. Even if you don't believe in an afterlife, the materialistic things mean nothing. People will never call up and say, you know, Alfonso, you use the best technology to record a podcast with me. I would remember how Alfonso made me feel uh, for the podcast and during the podcast. It is the memory of the non-materialistic that becomes uh, more predominantly encouraging, becomes valuable. We pay so much uh, uh, emphasis throughout our lives to the tangible, to the palpable, to the seeable, to the feelable, to the touchable, that we forget the intangible is equally priceless and is precious. Uh, you know, how somebody spoke to you, what they said in your lowest moment, in your highest high, and how they helped you scale up mountains and how they helped you uh, trespass valleys. That is what you remember. And so that, that's what the tea seller really taught me as his learning that we all, we all are alarm clocks for each other. Uh, whether we wake up or not is a question of another nature. But, but, but that's what we do. We sacrifice our lives in the last moments in the hope that our life means something to those who are living and helps them guide to their highest potential. Definitely a strong message. I appreciate you sharing that one. And these are the stories that you collected and I have some of them, uh, that maybe we'll touch later when we talk about Project Fuel and uh, all your writing. But one of the things I want to touch base now is that all this collection of these stories and that journey that took you two and a half days to get to Mumbai to explore yourself and to keep growing as this media person that you're today has transformed you into a public figure. Um, if you allow me to say that, you have spoken twice in TED Talks, which are well known around the world. You serve as the kindness ambassador for UNESCO, and you even host some conference with Nobel Peace Prize winners. How did the journey began for you to go from uh, collecting stories to what you are today, which is like a public, a public person? Thank you for that question, by the way. Um, you know, when I served as the kindness ambassador, I just wrapped that title last month. Uh, but... I think all of these accolades that you list, I see them as means to 
an end. I see them as the tool for the message, honestly, and Fonzo. I think I'm not shuffled by any sense of notoriety. It's because the life lessons and the stories that I'm telling you on this call um, and, you know, that you read in my work is what drives me to pass them on. Uh, the platform, whether it's TED, whether it's UN, everything is a tool to pass on the message loud and clear. But the message is what stays at the heart. And the message is that every person in the world has value, has wisdom. And if you can tap into it in a moment, in an instance or in a lifetime, you have done the best you can for that person and for your own growth through that person's journey. So from a person who was collecting stories to a person who now delivers them, uh, I think I was compelled to do so because how would have I lived in peace with thousands and thousands of wisdom nuggets that were informing and entertaining my life and be selfish about it without sharing it with others? I think I would not have slept. I would have been an insomniac. But to sleep peacefully, I realized I had to pass on what I knew. I had to make sure that I had to carry it forward. And the only visual metaphor that I see for it is being a river. You know, you get to the source and then you flow and flow and flow and it accumulates in an ocean and it evaporates and it comes back. That's how I see these life lessons and stories, that they are dynamic in nature. They are evolutionary. And for me to find the courage to tell them is the, is, is the smallest demand uh, to do some justice and honor to everyone who trusted me, my team, in uh, depositing their wisdom and their stories and their narrative experiences. And all we have to do is think of innovative ways of passing them on, uh, truly. And that's where, you know, all the work that you see of Project Fuel, you see so much diversity in it. We started with education. I started designing people's life lessons into, uh, you know, conversational tools, into activities, into exercises. Then we went on to painting villages. Then we went on to giving these public talks. Then we went on to doing digital humanities and creating virtual output. Then we went on to creating, uh, you know, books. We are evolving as we start to train ourselves into our capacities you know whatever we know we use it to pass on these life lessons whether it's art whether it's education whether it's uh, academic learning whether it's scholarly research whether it's cultural documentation if you really see the journey of people at project fuel you will see the journey of project fuel uh, you know in direct proportion to it because we are training ourselves to better tell the stories of the people who are trusting us with their lives and their life stories so uh, to answer your question in, in a nutshell, I would say it has been the call of the content to innovate, to investigate, and to create uh, newer means and methods of passing on this knowledge. I, I don't take titles very seriously, I must share with you. I think titles are what you make out of them, not what you are given. Uh, you know, you can be a founder and artistic director of an organization and do absolutely nothing. But you can be a volunteer and contribute so much value that it doesn't matter whether you're called a volunteer or whether you're called an artistic director. So I say this to people in my organization, a title means nothing till you are willing to do the work for it. 
And that is my hope with, with all of these titles and accolades that I hope I continue to do, keep doing the work and the titles will come and go and they will expire and, you know, I will uh, serve them and move on to other things. I think the work demands and distinguishes the, the need uh, for a con- consistent growth within itself. That's very humbling of you. And uh, I had uh, other questions in this aspect, but I feel like we might better change gears a little bit. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask is about, you know, when you spoke at the United Nations in New York, but I think you made reference that you considered that to be a medium of your work and especially of Project Fuel and how you apply those life lessons, which we have a lot to get to. So what I'll do before we jump right into Project Fuel, uh, which will be the last block of our interview, is I want to cover all the aspects that make Deepak Ramola such a well-rounded person. And maybe you describe yourself as a jack of all trades, always exploring. So I have other aspects of who you are that by themselves, they will make you an extraordinary person. Uh, but on aggregation, it's, it's hard to comprehend how can you pack all that in a single person. The first thing I want to touch is you're uh, a writer. Uh, you have published a poet book and then you have the 50 toughest questions of life. And now you're writing your second poetry book. Um, you won several awards because of that. You won the, the Young Writer Award uh, at Jaipur. I think that was last year. And it's really inspiring yeah. to see how you put together that. And I had time to to read your book and to read some of those 50 toughest questions of life. And I think in one of part of the book, you mentioned that what it makes you do that is that you hear a young lady to tell you that life is not about giving easy answers, but answering mm-hmm. tough questions. When did you hear that story and how did you say it? This is so inspiring that I'm going to go out there and collect 50 questions that I think are very tough. I put them on a book, answer them uh, and publish a book that became quite successful. Thank you. I was teaching in Afghanistan, um, you know, uh, one of the last non-profit uh, co-ed uh, schools where girls and boys would come to learn music and art. And I was teaching there. The school was unfortunately shut down by the Taliban. And I'm not even talking about 2021 because that's exactly what's happening. But I'm talking about, uh, you know, further back, 2014, 2015. And Alfonso, around that time when the school was shut down uh, with multiple threats from, uh, you know, the Taliban, uh, this was on the last day I was asking my students uh, and the person who was running the program. What does this mean? I was so dejected with the program being shut down and not being able to meet my students or go back to Kabul and, you know, go and meet them in person. We had done so many classes online. And that's when the person said to me that Deepak, life is not about giving easy answers. It's about tough questions. And she said, this is one of those situations where we are facing a tough question. We don't know what the answer is. And maybe the answer will change over time. And I think that that life lesson of her, Alfonso, stayed with me to the point where I thought, well, she is right. Life is about answering tough questions. Uh, But what are tough questions and who's asking them and where can you find them? So I went on a year and a half quest to collect some of the toughest questions from around the world. I gathered books. I went to libraries, I searched the internet, I watched the Oprah Winfrey show because she's really good at asking some tough questions. I created a depository of 3,000 toughest questions. Can you imagine? And the biggest purpose of that 3,000 repository was the people I was going to date. I thought, let me ask them as many tough questions about life that 
I will know that I date this person or not. But more than a dating exercise, that thousand questions started evaporating and condensing themselves into, you know, 420 and 380 and 320 and 150 and eventually to 50. When people said, oh my God, that's such a tough question. I, I need time to think about it. I noted it and I star marked it as one of the tough questions. And over time, the 3,000 questions condensed themselves into 50 questions. And I played this as a game with really my close ones, people I wanted to understand better. I never made it public. And then somewhere around 2017, 2018, I was in uh, 2018, I was in the US standing in, in, the, in a library, uh, in, uh, in a bookstore uh, in San Francisco. And looking at the self-help section, and every book that I saw on the shelf was answers after answers after answers, you know, how to live your life better, how to influence your friends, how to do this. And I thought, well, these are all answers. Where are the questions? And then as I came home, I realized I have the questions that I have collected. And now it's my responsibility to share it with the world at large. And that's how I encourage myself to pen down the book amidst everything I do. And I've been very blessed that people have found so much of solace and refuge in the 50 toughest questions of life. Uh, and, and there's such good response to the book's content and the questions themselves. And regarding the young lady that inspire you, and obviously these are complicated times in Afghanistan and very hard to understand from the outside, um, have you been able to keep in touch with her and all the students that you uh, that you taught when you were there? And how can you bring them hope uh, if they feel that the situation is, you know, no one to be feeling hopeful about? Uh, yes, the, the 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 lady I'm in touch with, the girl, young girl, she studies in uh, Australia now. Uh, she had to escape uh, at that time. Uh, I'll keep her identity anonymous because of obvious security reasons for her uh, life and family. But she now studies in Australia. We've kept in touch uh, throughout, you know, the, the latest crisis in, in Afghanistan, uh, the, the overturning of the government and, and takeover by the Taliban. Many of the young students, unfortunately, became refugees. The young girls got married that year. So I have not been able to personally keep in touch because a lot of them were not allowed to have cell phones and have any outside contact. But I've been in touch with their main person uh, who used to be the coordinator of the project. Yeah. Wow, definitely something very difficult to understand from the outside. And uh, the fact that you had the exposure to be there and learn, I'm sure it shaped you a lot. And there's a lot of great questions on your book. And I obviously <clears throat> could ask you all of them. It'd be really entertaining, but I encourage anybody to go and just buy the book. But there's one that I really thought It'd be interesting to bring up even before this conversation, but this conversation made me realize this is probably a really good question since you learn a lot of things in our life very early. I was wondering if you can answer what lesson in life took you the longest to learn, which I think is really reflective. Um, so somebody has seen as much as yourself. It's a really good question to ask. Wow, there's so many, uh, Alfonso, truly. But one of the things that has stood out for me that took me the longest to learn is that you cannot please everyone. You just cannot make everyone happy. Even if you say a universally proven fact, for example, the sun rises from the east uh, or the earth is round, you will have two people raise their hand and say that's a conspiracy theory. Uh, so I realized 
over time uh, that you cannot make everyone happy. And as a young boy who was bullied, who had a hard time making friends, uh, I, I, I just, you know, took to pleasing people. I would want to do a good job, cause no harm. I wanted to ensure everyone was pleased with me. I didn't want to ruffle any feathers. I didn't want to discomfort anyone. Didn't want to argue. And so I was a big yes man uh, in those growing up years. But when I realized that even if you be that, not only will people see you as somebody who's very submissive, who doesn't have a backbone, but also it is exhausting. It is exhausting to just worry about making everyone, uh, you know, agreeing with you on every single point, pleasing other people and not living your best life. It becomes dictated by how everybody else wants to participate and what, want, what they want you to do. You will have a hard time saying no. And that is a lesson that took me a long time to learn. I think I'm still en route. I have a very tough time saying no to anything and anybody. But I think I'm further along from that place. Uh, I'm more cautious about my time. I'm more intentional about my work. I'm more... Uh, aware about things I want to do. And I'm also not pleasing people for validation. I already love myself. I like who I am. And it will take a lot from somebody else to change that now. And I think that's the biggest change and difference that I see over the years. And hopefully a lesson in learning, uh, you know, that, that, that continues to change its shape and form uh, and, and tricks me all the time. But yeah, further along and very happy uh, to be this far. Yeah, I think a good way to compress that is to say that you own your happiness and uh, nobody else should own that. And you don't own anybody else's happiness, right? I think that's something that is difficult to learn. Uh, so it's a good one. And uh, you already mentioned that you don't like to say no, which is just coming at a perfect time for me here, Deepak, because one of the things that I have noted here is that, as I mentioned before, you write poetry, but something else that you have done that is impressive on itself is that you also write song lyrics and you have several of them but I just want to mention one that was sung recently in a Bollywood movie by the famous uh, actor Amitabh Bachchan an incredibly famous person in India and he went to sing one of your songs about friendship and I was wondering after you tell us who Amitabh is if you can sing a little bit of that song for us Oh my God, <laughs> Alfonso, singing might be hard. Uh, but uh, yes, Mr. Amitabh Bachchan is, uh, is the mega superstar of Indian cinema, of the Hindi film industry. He is a legend, somebody we all look up to. I wrote a song for one of the films that he was acting in. And to my surprise, I was told that he's going to sing the song for himself. Um, let me recite uh, the, the lyrics for you instead of singing it because he does it so much better so people can... Uh, listen to him on, on YouTube. Okay, we'll give you a pass. Thank you so much. The song lyrics go, Yari teri yari chal mana is bari, Sari meri sikre tere aage aake hari. Which means that your friendship, I now, now accept. You know, with friends, it's very difficult to accept things because you're constantly arguing, pulling their legs. So it's very difficult for the world to understand these different uh, unique attributes to our friendship. We don't belong to the world. There's a world that belongs to us. And so every friendship inculcates a universe of its own kind. And then when we do that, we realize we are never alone. 
so that's the essence of the song in a way mujhko teri bimari is kehungi duniya ke sangi hum na hote yaara apni to yaari atrangi hai mere kar merangi shaame hun tak ke bas malangi yaara apni to yaari atrangi Yeah, really great achievement for yourself. So for the last big block of the episode, and you touch about it a little bit, is to talk about Project Fuel and how that is the latest manifestation of your life mission and the work that you are the team are doing. So I have a lot of points about that. But before I do that, I'll introduce Project Fuel, which stands for Forward, uh, the understanding of every life lesson, uh, and is and it's something that you're doing to bring the stories that you collect to life, right? So I'll give you two quick examples of different verticals. In the educational realm, we take a life lesson and we design it into an activity. For example, um, there was a woman, 33-year-old woman, who once said to me, "My life lesson is: if your face can surprise you in the mirror every morning, you're living a good life, or you're having a good life." And so I took that lesson and I thought, how can you make people reflect about it? And I took very small mirrors, the one that you use for decorative purposes. and i gave people in the classroom that mirror very small in size very very small and i asked them to find 40 new things about their face in 4 minutes and that's a great example of of of, of turning a life lesson into an activity and at the end of an act of that activity people had found several things about their face that they never thought about previously including a girl who had stopped smiling because she was bullied for her smile she realized in that activity that her smile suits her face So that's something she discovered. So we take people's anecdotes. There's a lot of examples on our website that people can read. The other thing that we do is, uh, in the digital way of taking these stories, is uh, is a project of ours that we launched during COVID called the World Wisdom Map. The World Wisdom Map is a repository of life lessons from every single country in the world, all 195 countries, and. when you go there if you see your life lesson you can submit your life lesson you can read other people's life lessons and you start seeing that in relation to every other person's knowledge and wisdom and insight across the world so the worldwisdommap.com is the place where people can check this beautiful unique breathing repository of wisdom from people from all across the world and then there are data insights we study patterns between these stories and see what are people learning and how are they learning for example when you take about 300 stories from 195 countries you see that 47% of people learn from the outer circle which is society strangers public idols and those kind of insights is what we play with so the website is projectfuel.in for india and anybody can yeah. go there and uh, submit some life story which like i did a couple of days ago um and it's very simple it just takes a couple of minutes you said that during covid you saw a really big explosion of stories coming from everywhere in the world and i don't think project fuel uh it just happened to be based in india but you collect stories from 195 countries right so i was thinking yeah a really good way for these people to find your website it might not be to type .in at the end and that might obviously have a very sentimental space on your heart because that's where you started so what i did deepak and this is live and true i went and purchased 
projectfuel.org. And in behalf of myself and the team, we want to give it to you as a gift. So if you go that to projectfuel.org today, it will automatically direct anybody to your project field.india website. I thought you have so many people from all over the world that might want to submit stories and changing that domain a little bit might give you a little bit more of reach. So on behalf of myself and the team, we want to give you that domain for you that represents your truly global presence today. Oh my God. So I'm switching on my camera so that you can see my reaction. That's insane. Thank you. How thoughtful of you and the team. I'm truly touched. I don't know what to say. Oh my God, Alfonso, that is so moving. And I'm and, and glad you took it that way because I don't want to be misrespectful. I understand that the dot .in uh, is very meaningful because you guys come from India, but I feel you're just simply based in India, but you're a global movement. This is just a small gesture from us at Deepak. So you have projectfuel.in. <laughs> ORG for anybody listening, you can go and submit your story right there, right now. Oh my God, that is, in, oh my God, that is so, first of all, it's so thoughtful. I don't know how to do the interview, the rest of the conversation with you. You can see it in my face. It, it takes a lot to surprise me and stump me. It takes a lot. I'm not usually surprised and stumped. This has really blown my wits out. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. <laughs> I'm really glad you took it that way. Uh, so yeah, there you go, Deepak. I was so inspired by the Project Fuel. And we have this common friend, Sanchita, who's the person who introduced us. And I've yeah. uh, been in this rabbit hole of research from everything you did, but also the, the organization. And I was really touched as well by the Under the Yihab, um movement that I think you started when you were working in Europe yes. with the refugees. Can you explain what the movement is, how it started and how big it became? Absolutely. Uh, so I was um, on a trip in 2016. I went to Europe to help with the integration of Syrian refugees. As you know, uh, you know it was one of the biggest humanitarian crises and uh, a lot of people migrated from Syria to uh, Europe. So I traveled for 90 days across several parts of Europe listening to refugees, documenting their life lessons, integrating them into modules and helping them, you know, settle into their new life. And I met this young girl named Sarah, who was 20 years old, from Syria. And she told me how she was called a terrorist for wearing a burqa, uh, you know, the, the black garment uh, that covers uh, the, the body. And a lot of Middle Eastern countries, women wear the hijab, uh, which is, you know, the covering. And she said she was called a terrorist for wearing the hijab. And it was it was so sad to see a young girl already struggling with having lost her country, having migrated to a new place, building her life to go through those experiences. And so when I came back, uh, in fact, her life lesson was don't hate what's strange. So when I was on my flight, Alfonso, back to India, I painted a faceless hijabi woman's portrait on my flight. And when I landed, I called up two of my artist friends and I said, you know, I would like for you to tell me who do you see under the hijab based on the interactions you've had with people. And so they do the portraits and then we do sort of a challenge where they tag two people and those two ta people tag somebody else. And that movement grew where people across the world 
created some incredible artworks about uh, their own perceptions of hijabi women and uh, yeah it was one of the most fantastic campaigns that uh, you know and glad that i could think of but also sara could inspire and instigate within me uh, you know a chance to bring it out to the world and make it a very collective glo- global movement yeah and certainly it's really beautiful story that end up being a global movement and it has some really beautiful art to go with that one of the things you mentioned before is what is probably your project view masterpiece which is the wall wisdom map where you you know have a way to beautifully represent all the stories that you're collecting from the website or you as a team together there's another digital activity that um you are doing now that i find is worth highlighting which is the twice as wise youtube sensation they're really beautifully produced i don't know who is the person on your team that helps you with that uh but they do a really good job one of the videos that i want to highlight that i like the most is how you introduce the the beautiful building where project fuel is based today which you call the nest and all the activities that you still do around the area like the creator in residence um, but also the human festival so those are two things that i want to touch about can you explain what creator in residence is as well as the human festival sure so the creator in residence basically we have a beautiful um we have a beautiful studio here in in derudu where we live and it has two artists to people from different parts of the world poets thinkers creative thinkers you know illustrators animators who come and work on their own things but also collaborate with us so that's the artists in residence program before covid we were doing it extensively with covid we kind of shut down we're slowly opening people who are vaccinated can come so that's the creator in residence program and uh, the fuel human festival is one of world's first human wisdom festival it's a four day residential festival that takes place in the mountains and we invite people it's a very curated festival of about 200 people uh, varied speakers and people apply through an application and uh, are invited to stay for four days and they go through a series of mini experiences rooted in wisdom in learning from it in reflecting about it in and exchanging it so we did the first edition in 2019 2020 and 21 unfortunately because of covid we have put on uh, you know hold but we are looking forward to doing one in 2022 uh, the fuel human festival well i'm glad that is coming back because i wanted to ask that obviously covid has had a severe impact in many places india been one of them you have to come You have to come to Fanzo. Yes, only if you reserve me that room on the nest and if you allow children uh, to be in the house because obviously yeah. <laughs> as you know I have a daughter. Well, nearly two. Yeah. We're days away from be two two daughters. So yeah, I would love to take my daughters to India. Absolutely. This conversation is great. Yes. I feel I, I cannot let you go without asking you what is your life lesson. <laughs> yes, that's a great question. Fanzo as you can imagine somebody who collects life lessons for a living must have many right rather than just one so uh can i do two instead of one if if your permission if you permit uh, me absolutely absolutely we will take as many as you want <laughs> wonderful so i have two the first one is the one that has stayed with me ever since i started project fuel and and saw this work being impactful around the world and the life lesson is share your story with as many people as possible as many times as possible as far as possible 
because you have no idea who will listen to that story and say ah i am not alone you have no idea who will listen to that story and say i would like to do better you have no idea who would take what you say and make it the motto of their life you hold the power to liberate someone of their guilt of their fear of their regret you hold the power to empower somebody to feel encouraged and uh, you know entitled to their own life and influencing their communities you can do that by sharing your story so if you can share your story every time you have the chance to do so i think you are doing the greatest philanthropy in the world leveraging of knowledge and cultivating a world where people value each other where they see every person as a walking talking uh, pool of of learning and experiences that are quite different from one's own so that's my first lesson share your story and while you're at it own your bloody story own your story and then share it you'll enjoy it so much more so that's lesson number 1 the second lesson a lot of times people look at my work i write songs i do poetry you know you listed so many of them yourself people feel overwhelmed and they're like oh you are special or you are extraordinary no actually the way i see it alfonso is i am an ordinary person with an extraordinary support system and an extraordinary will to do those things and so my second life lesson is your talent is not your gift it's your responsibility i have a beautiful organization which is project fuel i don't have to write songs i don't have to write books but now that i know i can i must not be lazy about it i must not be moody about it i must take the opportunity when i am informed that i have a talent i have a skill set if i take it as a gift i will use it sporadically i will use it when i want to please myself or the world but when i take it as my responsibility even amidst my hectic schedule i will find the time to write the next book and the next book and whether i taught 15000 people yesterday at a conference i will still show up to teach 15 children in a remote village so treating your talent as your responsibility not just as your gift will give you the power when you most need it to do what's needed what is the right thing to do and so those two lessons have really helped me uh through and through by and by across bad days and good days uh to do and shape every single iota of possibility uh, i have failed it more times than i have succeeded but i have failed gloriously and it is only possible because i was willing to share my story and i took my talent as my responsibility wow that's really touching i want to talk a few points about that you say you are not alone <clears throat> was kind of your first story and to share your story actually that's kind of why we started the podcast and you're going to be obviously our first guest that we're going to launch so i couldn't be happier that you mentioned that that's the ethos of why we're doing this to learn in public to be inspired and to share with other people right and it's often that the writer learns more than the reader so in this case because of the research i i did i would be immensely inspired and i hope anybody listening can get a you know a small share of that because that would be already a lot and and then you mentioned that ordinary people can make extraordinary things if they if they understand that their talent is actually not a gift is a responsibility it's also a very beautiful way to 
to end our conversation, Deepak, for anybody listening, what would be a good way for them to reach out or to help with Project Fuel? Oh, absolutely. So now, as Alfonso and his team have made our lives easier, uh, you can go to projectfuel.org or projectfuel.in and just write to us. We are very responsive with our emails. If you are more active on social media, I encourage you to come and DM us on Instagram. We are very Instagram and Facebook centric. So, uh, um, you know, you can write to us there. If you want to write to me personally, I'm also very active on Instagram. You can follow me on Deepak Ramola, D-E-E-P-A-K-R-A-M-O-L-A. And you can also send me an email on hello at deepakramola.com. And I thank you for listening to this conversation. And anybody can also go to your website, uh, deepakramola.com, which is very insightful and has a lot of videos uh, when you talk in different places and some of the stories that you mentioned here and others that you didn't. So it's, it's a good place for anybody to follow on after this call. And I'm really inspired by one of my favorite podcasters, which is uh, Patrick Osanashi and from Invest Like the Best. And he always asks the same closing question to every guest. And he says, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done to you, right? And I think... What a beautiful question that is, right? Because they're usually talking about um, investment and other things that not always can be lighthearted, but you always force everybody to finish the conversation with kindness and hope. And everybody listening kind of finish on the same note. So inspired by him, I like to close with all my guests with the same question. Uh, but be forward looking because our podcast is called Adelante, which means forward in Spanish. And the question is, what are you most excited about the future? Hmm, wow. That is a beautiful question. What am I most excited about the future? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a thought. I'm excited about a future that is not ashamed to celebrate its past. I'm excited about a future where possibilities are not just based on prophecies but based on collective learning. And most of all, I'm excited about a future where every single person shines bright as a star and makes help build a beautiful, sparkling, uh, invigorating constellation. And I'm, I'm excited about a future that's a constellation, not just a star. As you know, that's my favorite thing to say. So that's, that's a future that I'm really excited about. Well, that, that's wonderful, Deepak, and I highly enjoyed that closing thought as well as the whole conversation. And I'm really proud that you came on board. Thank you so much. You have a great day ahead. I know you have to run home.